Four year. Okay, why don't we get started and hope uh, that anybody else who wants to come does so. All right. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Randy Massett. It's good to have everyone here. Um, this is going to be a class uh, that I hope is kind of an interactive class. Ultimately, um, I want us to be looking at Old Testament narratives together, and uh, it's it's kind of an interest of mind, um, something I enjoy doing, and um, so that's my ultimate goal here is to get us together to have conversations about the narratives of the Old Testament. Um, today is going to be a little different. I'm going to introduce us to the concept of Old Testament, of reading the Bible, some practices and some principles that some of you may or may not be familiar with. I've kind of given some of this before, but I want us to be refreshed on those ideas so that we have those in our mind as we begin to look at narratives together, things that we need to pay attention to um, as we read texts in the Old Testament narratives in particular so that we can read them for meaning and application. So that's what today is going to be about going forward. We're going to be looking at narratives together. Next week, I'll introduce the kind of overall, the overarching theme of the narratives, which is going to be kind of how we as Christians, as God's people, live as aliens in this world. So that'll be the theme going forward. But as we begin our time, let's, uh, let's open it together in prayer. Lord God, we do give you thanks for this day where we can rest in the salvation that you have given to us. And we thank you for the grace of your word, the grace of your people in this place that we can come together to worship, to study your word, to encourage one another, and to worship you. So be with us in our time together, we ask now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to get through everything uh, in time here. The first thing I want to do is to call out, because um, I've got this Old Testament interest, and that is um, not reading the Old Testament. Now, I, I think we do a good job in this church. We, we, had, we read the Ten Commandments today. John's been preaching where? In numbers of all places. Uh, Chris did a sermon on Ruth. So we do a good job in using and incorporating the Old Testament in our worship, in our study together as God's people. But let's face it, there are churches, there are other places, and sometimes we, even in our own Bible studies and, and devotions, avoid the Old Testament. We don't read it um, for different reasons. And in fact, um, if we, we look at it, there's this um, idea of what's called, what I would call and some have called implicit Martianism. Now, Martian of Sinope it was a heretic um, in the uh, second century church. And he was a dualist, sort of like Gnosticism. So he sort of saw this, you know, the flesh and the spirit kind of thing. And he took that all the way down the line. So he saw things such as, you know, you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. You've got the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. And so anything that had to do with Judaism, he threw out. So he threw out the Old Testament. In fact, he was the first one to form a New Testament canon. And it only included part of Luke and the Pauline epistles. Because even 
the other epistles, they were associated with the apostles who were Judaizers, and therefore he threw that out as well. In response, the church then established the canon, established the creeds, the orthodox creeds and the teachings and the organization of the church. My point here is that sometimes we behave as if the Old Testament isn't around or isn't important to us. Um, not so. And there are some reasons for why we do this. And I think some of them, first of all, are, pra oops, are practical reasons. And that is because the Old Testament tends to be hard to understand. Yeah, we read the Psalms. We got that. You know, we'll throw that in. That's why a lot of you know, Bibles, it's the New Testament and the Psalms put into a book for us, right? Makes it nice and convenient. Um, however, there are things that make it difficult. We're used to reading propositional truths. We're very Western in that idea. Stories are associated with the Eastern concepts of conveying ideas. And so we like kind of how, well, we may not like how Paul writes. Um, he's kind of hard to understand, but nevertheless, he's telling us things more directly. So there's things, you know, there's genealogies. We got all these laws and rituals. You know, we don't do those anymore. There's laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness, clean foods, unclean foods. Yeah, Levitical priests, they're not around anymore. We don't do that. There's all these feasts and holy days. We don't do those. So because of all of these things in the Old Testament that we're not familiar with, we sometimes practically don't go to the Old Testament because it takes more work. And there are these theological reasons, too. Subconsciously, I think we need to be aware of how we think about the Bible. You know, we see the Old Testament as written to Israel, not the church. That, the New Testament was written to the church. We've, Old Testament is the equivalent of what? Old covenant. Old implies it's old. We've got the new thing. We've got the new covenant, and that's what all we need. So we've got, you know, the Old Testament is a book of law. We're under grace now. Um, God in the Old Testament is God of wrath. We, we are, we're clinging to the God of love in the New Testament. So whether we talk about these things and acknowledge them, sometimes we do create this dualistic idea between the Old and the New Testament. So I throw that out there just because we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, and I want people to see why it's important to do that. So reading the Old Testament. Second Timothy, something we should all be familiar with, Right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, what's interesting about this verse? This is the interactive part. <laughs> all scripture. Okay, what's he talking about? The Old Testament. That's all Paul had. Okay. So this verse is telling us that the Old Testament is good for all of these things. Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Ah, what a great verse. And these are all Paul. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 10 now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So my point is that the Old Testament was given for us today. It was given for the New Testament church. And so I want us to be excited about the Old Testament, 
to see that it's here for us. It can provide teaching, even though it's going to be a little hard to get to sometimes um, in determining that truth. It's important. It's here to teach us um, how to live our lives as God's people. Now, let me just pull up a verse here. This is an interesting verse uh, in terms of why it is difficult for us so much to um, read the Old Testament. This is Hebrews 10. Now, it's a whole verse, and I want us to look primarily at the first part, where it says, For since the law has but a shadow, that is literally a sketch of the good things to come, instead of the true form, that's translated really likeness or picture of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, what I want us to see is that the author of Hebrews is drawing a distinction here. Chrysostom says that the law is the mere skia of the future, the sketch of the future, of the good things to come, instead of the true form or the likeness of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices, so I'm sorry, sorry, um, under the, 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 okay, sorry, let me start with, the law is the mere skia of the future and is not the picture. Until the painter lays on the colors in the painting, it is only a sketch But when he adds the hues, it becomes a picture. Such the law was, for he calls it a sketch of the future good things. Now this is Bishop Wordsworth on this same passage. He says, there are three things considered here. First, the reality of the future good things in heaven and eternity. Secondly, the icon, that is the clear picture of them in the gospel. And then the skia, or the dim outline of them in the law. So there is this future reality that the Old Testament is talking about, but it's given to us only as a sketch. And then in the New Testament, more things are added. It becomes a painting. Now, it's a representation. Both are representations of that reality in the future to different degrees. And so even as we look at this in the Old Testament, we're getting a sketch of the future. But remember, we have the whole book. So it's fair for us to look forward and see how that sketch becomes developed in the New Testament. And we have to remember that even what we have in the New Testament is only a representation of the reality that is in heaven. Something we'll never plumb, but we should try to achieve a better understanding of. So there's this idea of progressive revelation. So um, this future reality. So we've got one word, one Bible, and there is a progression within it. And um, it's a single book. And therefore, just as any single book, you can't start in the middle and think that you're going to understand the rest of the story very well if you skip the first half. Well, more than the first half, right? So if we want to understand it, if we want to get a deep understanding of it, you know, we are going to have to, uh, not only of God's word, but of ourselves, of God himself and his plan for our will, and his will for our lives, we're going to have to look at the Old Testament. It's one story. One story. So if we look at the plot of the Bible, you know, plot, that's where we'll talk about that a little bit later, but we've got the setting, which is creation, we've got a conflict that arises in the garden, which is the fall, and then God takes action against that. He has the covenant of works, that's the fall results as a part of that, And then you have these various covenants that lead us up to the new covenant and the climax, which is the cross. We have to understand, too, that it's not the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and the Noah covenant. 
All the covenants subsequent to the fall are under the covenant of grace. Uh, what's that? Subsequent to the cross. Before the... Everything after the fall is the covenant of grace. Right. Yeah. So all of those are various forms that reveal more and more of God's plan to us about his plan for salvation leading up to the cross. Now, if this is a plot and we've got the resolution is consummation, guess what? We're in this story. So where are we? We're after the cross, we're before the consummation, and let's hope it's really far down that slope on the right side. But we're in that story, and so we need to read our lives in that story, and this used to be a trendy term of meta-narrative and all that sort of stuff. But um, we, we are in the narrative of God's plan. And so we need to read our lives, how that fits in as well. Any, any questions? This is just to get us excited about the whole Bible and... You know, as a whole kind of thing. Okay. So I want to talk then about how we read the Bible. About reading. Any, any literate... we got Dan here to keep me straight. Um, people... Any other sort of literature people? Okay. So I'll look to you, Dan. Okay. So... Reading is pretty straightforward. I don't want to make things too complicated, but there are some things that I want to draw out about reading in general. First of all, just an acknowledgement that it's literary communication. Okay, so we are reading something that is intended to communicate to us something. And there are three elements, basically, that we can identify when we're talking about reading. Anybody want to take a stab at what those are? You want to take a stand there? I know what I say, but I don't know what's you. Okay. Okay, so we have the author, we have the text, and we have the reader. It's a process, right? So, I, you know, it's so obvious people are afraid to answer that question. I realize that. Okay. Now, um, what I want to comment first off is that if, if you go out there and you read some scholars and different things, there are various methodologies that people use in reading. And sometimes what they tend to do is to emphasize one facet of reading over the other. So we have like source critical, historical critical people who focus on the history of the text itself. So they're focusing really on um, the author. Can we find the different authors behind the text we have? That's what we're looking for. And then tease them out. So they're not really looking for meaning. They're trying to deconstruct the text into its various author points and what um, sort of things they bring to it. Form criticism or structural criticism focuses on the text itself, trying to see what kind of forms are there, what is the oral message behind those forms, and historically where those fall. Then you have, have postmodernism and, every, and reader response, which focuses on the reader. The reader is the, the person in this equation that provides the meaning, um, irrespective maybe of what those words might actually say. And deconstructionism that basically throws everything out the window and said, can we even read? But the thing I want to talk about, in, I want to make a couple comments that are important, I think, for us about these three elements. And the first is um, the author. Now, we have a historical author, and, and as those of a Reformed tradition, we believe there is always a divine author. Okay, so God is the author of Scripture. So as we look at this, we're not saying, this is what so-and-so said, and there's discontinuity with one author, with God as being the author throughout all of Scripture. 
We have a unified text, a unified message. It also means that because God is the author of the text, um, that the text itself and the author can say more than he means. The historical author can say more than he knows. Because it is God himself who's communicating to us through these human authors, his word, his divine plan. And that's how we get some of the interpretations in the Old Testament. And Jesus pointing to fulfillments that we think, that, that, where, where did he, how did he draw those lines? But it's because God himself is writing the story for us. So that's an important thing as we look to interpret texts that we can draw connections to the New Testament and we can also reference backwards and forwards because we have a unified author. And I think that's really critical as we look for reading the Old Testament in a Christocentric manner. Secondly, the text itself. Um, that's the message of the author. It's important that we look for genres. Genres are, give us the rules sometimes for how we interpret text. You know, we need to understand that wisdom literature has a certain idea about it. Wisdom literature is not a book of promises. It is a book of wise sayings. So don't go to the you know, wisdom literature to get promises about what will happen. Um, similarly, if we look at narratives... We're seeing stories, and we have to read those that way. But within it, there is this sense of, and you look up any definition of reading, there is the implied interpretation. If you're going to do anything with a text, you're going to have to interpret it, and so that's implied there. But the scripture that we have, the text is inspired and errant, which means it's authoritative to us, and it's a grace. And so we need to be in the word if it's a grace to us. And we need to figure out and understand how, how we can read it effectively. Now, so we come to the reader ourselves. Um, and, um, of course, we all bring baggage to any reading that we have. Um, so let me just say that um, as we look for things in the text, we try to, in some senses, strip away our baggage. Now, when we get to application, it's important to bring your baggage back in. But I think, um, to some extent... But I, I think the, the idea here is that we need to be self-aware of the limitations maybe we're bringing to an interpretation because we don't want to go there. Because we have hang-ups with what the Bible is teaching us and we fight against that. So we have to be open, we have to be humble, and we have to make sure that we come to Scripture in prayer and praying for the Holy Spirit to guide us in understanding it. Yes. Authorial intent, yeah. So there's intent there, and so yeah, we do bring baggage, but yet they are trying to communicate. Yes. That's that's right. There is a tension, and sometimes that's part of the problem when we go to reader responses because, um, you know, those that sort of methodology says, I'm not looking for what the author was trying to tell his reader. I'm trying to find whatever makes me either feel good or, or whatever else I'm trying to define as to what I want to get out of that text. So it's a good point. We are looking for authorial intent. And who's the author? Okay. We got a couple you know, going there. So we have the, the historical author, which is writing to a historical audience, but we have God who is writing to his people throughout time.
So that creates a, you know, a context of reading it in various layers. Okay, there's some different methods up here too that I, I just, we've talked about these in the past as a church. You know, at a high level what we're doing, um, I bring up translation, you know, translation, interpretation, application, real high level. I bring that up too because translation is interpretive. You know, there's some words, some expressions that can be multivarious. And so the translators have to take a particular, they can only put one word there, um, but it could be nuanced. So it's good to look at various translations. Make sure you're looking at a translation, um, not necessarily a paraphrase, but it is good to compare translations um, as you do study God's word as well, because that can help you. Um, Dennis Hack, former member of our congregation, you know, he has the SOAR. Um, Dan Doriani then has this capture thing. But I guess the thing to notice is that, you know, the response um, and for Doriani, the obligations and reflections, that's all application. Everything before it is interpretation. What do we do to help interpret the text? Okay, now I'm going to go through this a little quickly because time eludes us. Um, but there are different layers that we, need, we, we bring that are, the, the text itself functions at different levels. Okay? And we have to be aware of that. So we have the historical, we have the theological, and we have the literary or aesthetic. So these are different things that we need to understand as we're coming into the text, especially when I'm talking about Old Testament narratives. So the Bible, the Old Testament, is not a history book. It's not trying to be one. It is telling us historical facts. But it's not trying to be a historical text, a history book, rather. It conveys historical information, tells us about the history of the world. It tells us about the history of the nations, where they came from. It tells us particularly about the history of Israel. It tells us, even more importantly, about the historical purposes of Israel. The story of the origin, the claim to the land, their identity with God, and their purpose as a people. But it doesn't really stop there, because it's really more important that it is a history that's trying to teach us something, not just inform us of what happened. So creation teaches um, our intended state in relationship with God. The fall teaches us about the lost relationship with God. Babel, the Tower of Babel, teaches us a lost understanding of God. And the call of Abraham teaches that God is intent on restoring both of these. So they give us this record um, and it fits into this larger purpose, which is the history of God's plan of salvation for us. Starting creation, the covenant of works, the fall, um, all of that fitting then into this plan of redemption. So that really is the second piece is, while it's, it's intended to speak historically, it's primarily intended to teach theologically. And so the Bible represents history as theology. In the beginning, God. God acts. God breaks into history. So it tells us a story about the history with God inside of it. And we take that as historical. Others might say, once you introduce God into the story, now we're into fable, we're into fantasy, or some other kind of genre. We're talking that this is historical narrative. So the history gives, reveals to us who man is. It tells us who God is. 
It records the revelation and the relationship between those two, the covenants which help to unify and to structure scripture for us and the history. Now, the last part is where we kind of want to focus um, the rest of today, and that is um, the literary. And here we want to talk about narrative. And um, it's important to understand that narrative is not like story in a very critical way because we've talked about it as history. Biblical narrative is a demonstration of truth. Okay, a story can illustrate truth for us, but it does not demonstrate it. A made-up story can illustrate it, but it can't establish it. And so here, when we have historical narrative, we are given stories in a literary way to demonstrate truths to us of God's activity within history, with mankind, and his plan of salvation. So narratives are theologically intentional. So Genesis 3 does not illustrate God's intention to redeem mankind, but it demonstrates it, because the narratives themselves are true. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit here to features of narrative now. Okay, we sort of talked about this already to some extent, um, some pieces of this. In, in narrative, you have, we need to understand um, what's involved in narrative. We've got the characters, or the who, the plot, which is the what, and we have the setting, which is the where and the when. These are all facets that as we read Old Testament narratives, we need to be aware of, to identify and to examine. So we have characters that are situated in um, a time and a place who act or are acted upon by other characters. And that's what we're trying to read. It gives us the context and it describes for us. Remember, when we read scripture, what's king? What do they say is king? Context is king. So whenever you read scripture, and this is not just narrative, this maybe is even more so with Paul, because he can twist you many different ways. Um, But we need to be sensitive to the context of where things are being talked about. Now, that's true here, and sometimes what we do, I mean, this is the setting of the story. What is going on? What is the history? Where are we at in the story? What book? What's the time frame? What other things are going on around it? Be sensitive um, to the, um, the setting itself. Because... We, we have to understand that when you read a novel, you get a lot of information. The number of pages is unlimited for novelists, right? They can write just as much as they want. And sometimes we wish they'd write just maybe a little less. But um, in the Bible, it is very much you are given what you need. If you see details, it is there for a reason. It is purposeful to the story. Um, so, the important thing I guess I want us to notice here in the setting is that, you know, asking yourselves, why is this particular detail here? What does it communicate? If we look at um, Judges 6.11, this is the story of Gideon. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Aviezrite, while his son Gideon 
was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So, interesting verse. Beginning of the Gideon narrative, pretty much it's verse 11. Well, what happened in those first 10 verses? Okay, it described this sort of, you know, cycle that goes through judges where, you know, the Israelites disobeyed, they went after other gods, God brought, you know, the Midianites in, they kind of, you know, suppressed them, made it difficult, all this sort of stuff. So what do we see in this about setting? What, what things can we glean out of this? Pun not intended. Any, anything? Anybody see? What's that? There's fear. He's hiding from. Okay. How do we know he's hiding? Oh, yeah, I didn't put the verse up, did I? Yeah. Yeah, it does say he's trying to hide it. And he's doing it in a wine press, actually. So he's in a place, you know, it's the wheat harvest. They're not going to be looking in the wine presses, you know, as the Midianites raid or whatever they do. Um, so he's actually, it tells us a little bit something about Gideon, too, doesn't it? Tells it, hey, he's not a slouch here. He's pretty clever. He's going up the wine press. You know, the wine presses are, you know, set down in the stone as well. So they provide a little bit of a cover. You know, you're still threshing, you're throwing it up in the air, trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and all that sort of stuff. But we have Gideon, this, this is, gives us a picture of what it's already described to some extent. We know that um, they're being oppressed, but this gives us a picture of the context to which oppression is taking place. People are having to go up into different places and try to take avert, averting means to, to uh, get their food. So anyway, there are other details there, but we'll talk about those later. Okay. The plot, you know, plot is really the action of the story. Um, it is the connection that we see of things moving together. Um, mostly what we see in plot is conflict, just as we talked about the story there, right? Conflict is what makes a story interesting. And so um, that propels the story forward in search of a resolution, and it also we have different, generally, layers of conflict that come into it as we get to the climax. More and more things um, become complicated, usually. So we have to look at what other conflicts arise, what characters contribute to that conflict, which side are they on? Are they trying to reach resolution? And when does the, how does the resolution arrive for that conflict? Who brings it about and to what degree? Is it satisfactory? Okay, if you look at the book of Judges, the plot of the whole book is a descending spiral into chaos, really. We have a cycle of Israel um, worshiping God, turning away from God, God calling in the back, God bringing oppression, Israel crying out, Israel responding, maybe not really repenting, but responding. Um, then things get better, and then Israel sort of gets complacent, and they go after the gods. However, things get more and more chaotic, because in the end, what's happening? You have civil war. It's not people outside, and that's why at the end we have you know, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. Okay, so we got this overarching plot. And resolution, at the end, it's not happening. There isn't resolution at the end of Judges. It's just setting you up for Samuel. 
big book, right? All one story. Okay. So this is um, kind of P. Brooks' um, sort of more detailed outline of what plot and narrative structure might look like. It's in Tremper Longman's book um, on literary approaches to biblical interpretation. And he kind of draws it out just a little bit more. Again, it looks very similar to, you know, at one level, high level of what we showed in the plot of the Bible. But this is going to be in each story that we see. Now, the companion really to plot is, of course, uh, character. Because um, character, as uh, Henry James put it, he says, what is character but the determination of incident or event? And what is incident but the illustration of character? Uh, the Hebrew scholar Barfrat calls the, the plot the body of the narrative and the character is the soul of the narrative. So we have this really, this is what's going on in every narrative that has characters. The character moves the forward plot by doing things and those things that he does, they tell us about who this character is. So we want to be sensitive to what are we being shown and told about. So there's, there's different kinds of characterization that takes place in the Bible. Again, this is, these are the important details of as you read what to be sensitive to. Um, there are different kinds of character characters in each narrative. There are the stock characters. Those are the, it's like the messenger who comes and hands a piece of paper to the guy you know, who's talking to everybody else. He doesn't really do anything except help move things forward. We're not interested in him. There's flat characters that are simply one-dimensional. They don't change in who they are. They're functionary throughout the story, and they're consistent. They're static. The round characters are the more interesting ones because they're dynamic. We learn more about them. We may only learn degrees about a certain aspect of them. Sometimes we might see how they change as well, though. So we need to be sensitive to this. So characters reflect... The important thing is that characters reflect a biblical view of man. And what is that biblical view? They're broken. So you you got a bunch of broken people in the stories. They're all broken. So keep that in mind. And uh, just remember, so are you. Okay, characterization. There's different kinds of characterization. There's what is called direct characterization, which is very rare. It's where the narrator tells you something about a character explicitly. He doesn't leave it for you to interpret. He just tells you. Um, so it might be there's, you know, uh, David is ruddy. Ehud, what do we know about, what are we told about Ehud? No. no. Yes. Not, not Eglon, Ehud. Ehud's left-handed. That's a critical piece of information in the story. Eglon's fat. That's also a good, a good piece of information. Little boys really love that in particular. Um, you know, with David, we're told that the Lord is with him. Uh, Gideon is said to be afraid. Esau is said to be hairy. Jacob is smooth. Gideon is called a mighty man of valor. Um, we have Abigail and Bathsheba are so, said to be beautiful. All of these things are important for us to understand why things are happening in the, in the plot. And they tell us about those characters for a reason. So it could be moral, it could be mental. We're told that the serpent is what? Crafty. Guess what? That word 
is translated wise elsewhere in the Old Testament. So hold on to that one for some time. Um, so there's also something that's called um, a prophetic epithet. Um, that is, we're told something like Gideon. The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, um, he calls him a mighty man of valor. We have no reason to believe he's a mighty man of valor. We don't know whether that's true, whether he is or he's going to be. What is the angel saying? We don't know. But it's pointing forward. The point is that it's rare when we're told something specific. Um, so take note of it. Take note of details. That's where I'm trying to go with this. So indirect characterization is showing. It's what makes the story interesting. Um, the problem is, you know, you have to interpret. You have to be sensitive. Now, um, the art of narration is the narrator suppressing his own voice and focusing on the reader. Okay, so the, the reader, you have to draw inferences. He's being selective about what he's included. It's about the quantity of information that you're given. So pick up on the details. Um, we're often get things either through their actions. Sometimes there's direct discourse when characters are speaking to each other. What do they say? What are we told they say? There's indirect discourse where the narrator just tells us, uh, here's the gist of what he said or summarizes it. It's also key to understand what is not there sometimes. Again, in Gideon, uh, remember the, the fleece where he kind of is putting the fleece out? Well, Gideon actually leave it, it's interesting he says let me test again test what well he, he leaves out the object of testing if you look at every other instance of testing the use of that word in the old testament there is either an an object stated or implied there is no stated or implied object here and my sense is that Gideon gets it he stops because he's testing God. Okay? So it's good to be sensitive to what is left out, but what do their words tell us about them when they talk? Okay. Um, Alter says this about characterization. We're compelled... Uh, this is Robert Alter, um, the art of biblical narrative. We're compelled to get at character and motive through the process of inference from fragmentary data, often with crucial pieces of narrative exposition strategically withheld, and this leads to multiple or sometimes even wavering perspectives on the characters. So that's our job to try to figure it out. Leland Riken says that there are three, gives three points. Determine what the detail shows about the character. Decide if the detail says something good or bad, if it's sympathetic or unsympathetic and then translate that detail into an overall portrait of the character. And that's what we try to do as we read narrative to figure out who are these people. And it's important to understand people in narrative when we get the application, and that's part of the, the thing here. There's the human factor. They're going to be conflicted just like we are. Now, if we take this in looking at stuff, um, Walke, Bruce Walke... Uh, use this kind of close analysis to look at the Cain and Abel narrative. And a lot of people are concerned about why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable and Cain's not. Most people will point and say because Abel's was a blood sacrifice, right? That's what God wants. Well, Walke picked up on the fact that there's often a lot of these, um, the Old Testament narrative often does kind of 
contrasting of characters. You know, you got Eli and Samuel, Saul and David and all these things. And he noticed in this particular text that there's a contrasting of actions, not of the offering. So Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. Cain brought, brought the fruits of the soil. Not the first fruits, just the fruits of the soil. Abel offered the fat, which is the best part. We're not even told anything of what Cain's was or what, how it was given. So Walke, I think, rightly shows that Abel's is an act of heartfelt worship and Cain's um, offering is really unacceptable tokenism. But he's paying close attention to what it, we're being told in the text. Okay, finally, literary markers. And I know we're at time. Okay, I'm going to talk about these um, briefly. Selection. The Old Testament, as I mentioned, is an economy of means. We're told very little. But we need to be sensitive to the narrator in the story. A lot of times the narrator tries to be in the background, um, but not always. Sometimes the narrator steps up. Has anybody, you know, read the book Thief? Yeah? Who's the narrator? Death is the narrator. So sometimes the narrator is actually telling you what's going to happen in the future. Whoa. And it actually doesn't spoil the story, surprisingly. But so that sometimes the narrator comes to the front, sometimes the narrator goes to the back. Sometimes the narrator is telling you something about a character, sometimes that character is God. Um, so it's important to pay attention to the narrator voice. The narrator is omniscient. He knows things nobody else can know. He knows what goes on in the, the chamber of Eglon. He knows what goes on in the council of the generals with the kings of foreign lands. And he tells you that. Remember, we, we believe this is the inspired word of God. So there is selection, um, and it's related to characterization. We're being told what we need to know for the story. Um, interestingly, I mean, as we look at you know, what we're shown and what we're told, um, in Genesis 25, if you want to read that at, some, at your leisure, we're shown that Esau despises his birthright. There's a little vignette they exchange, right? He sells it. But then the narrator calls it out, too. He states it explicitly. And so Esau despises his birthright. So there's a, a text that actually does showing and telling together. Generally, you're going to get one or the other. Point of view is an important facet um, to be careful and to look for. When you're being told something in the stories, whose point of view are you being given? Is it the narrator's who's omniscient? Is it God's? Are we being told what God thinks? Are we being told maybe uh, what a character thinks? And maybe that's not a reliable or accurate point of view. So be sensitive to the kind of point of view. Um, because we're, we have the voice of God, we have the voice of the narrator, and we often have the voice of characters within a text. So the narrator is outside the story and authoritative, and he's giving meaning to it and helping us to interpret it there. So a, an example of point of view that uh, you know, could take you some different places would be when David brings Uriah, right? He calls Uriah back from the battlefield because um, you know, uh, Bathsheba's pregnant now, and he wants to send him in. So we have... David's point of view going on of come back, go, go visit your wife, and Uriah's sleeping outside the door. 
Now, what's his point of view in this? Why is he sleeping outside the door? Now, he tells him, you know, no, my, my troops are out there. But, I mean, one could surmise, too, is he sleeping out there maybe because he has concerns that something's gone on as well. What are the different points of view? Um, in, again, in Judges, if uh, we had time, we could read the passage where, at the very beginning, God tells Gideon, cut down the Asherah pole and tear down the Baal altar. Um, <clears throat> that's your father's. Okay? So Gideon takes ten men, he does it at night, he pulls it down, and he offers the other bull on it. So we have Yahweh's point of view, something's wrong here. You've got to tear this down. Gideon acts, he does it. He's not afraid of Baal. Doesn't seem to be on his mind. He is afraid of the townspeople. And the narrator tells us that. So that's his point of view. They're a problem. The townspeople look, they don't care about who this altar is to. They care that the Baal altar's gone. So they have a regard for Baal. Not for whoever this other god is. Joash asserts that the offense is against Baal. And Baal, you know, come on. So... There are these various points of views all being presented in one narrative there. So, again, we want to be sensitive to what perspective we're being given. Whose is it? Is it valid or not valid? Um, Okay, real quick here. Structure. Uh, We'll get into this. I'm not going to go into too much detail here other than to say um, look for things. Okay, you have inclusios. Inclusio is where you kind of a text or a section of text is bookended. People coming into a place and leaving a place. Um, Often a repetition of phrase that closes, opens the scene, closes the scene. Because often narratives are scenic, like a play. There are these different cast of characters and it moves maybe from one place to another. Notice who is leaving, who is coming, what are those scenes. Okay, there's chiasms, and you know we'll talk about that in, maybe next week. And that is a structure of um, where you have things bookended, but now you have these bookends continuing down to a single central scene, and it's structured that way to show you that's the scene I should be concerned about. Okay, so um, emphasis. There's, you know, themes and repetitions. Be sensitive to words. We, we notice even in our text this morning, the repetition of rejoice, the repetition of hope, right? What are the words that are being used? In Second Samuel 7, this is where, you know, one of the covenant texts with David and God, right? Okay, well, David says, I want to build a house for God. I already have my house. God says, no, you can't build a house for me. I will establish your house that is, your dynasty. So there's this use of the word house throughout the text. You know, be sensitive to how that's being used. Um, this is kind of what uh, Robert Alter calls the Leitwort. Um It's a particular word or expression or, that has prominence and its value in terms of it being strategic to the text. Um, so, any questions on our glide through this. I want to, want to just say a couple things about application. Um, the first is, as you go to a text, and, and we'll, this is the kind of the difficult part, right? But look for God. Where is God in the text? You know, we read Numbers um, a couple weeks back uh, where Israel was complaining. John preached on that. 
God has a bunch of things to say, but God says there, you know, that you have rejected me. So, why did he say you rejected me? They said, because why did we leave Egypt? They asked a question, and God views that as rejection. Okay, so what... He says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? So how does God see this as rejection? What are the people saying about God in their question? And what do they convey through their actions and words about themselves, their faith, their perception of who God is? Where does that look like me? In what I do, how I behave, how I talk to God. Look at my circumstances. It's kind of point of view. Secondly, learned to strip away the simplicity of the story. We give in very little details about a story. There's a complex reality behind that. We tend to say Israel was so thick. Man, they were dense. They had this great God. God did all these things. Well, guess what? The Pharaoh was real. His chariots were real. The desert was real. The Red Sea was real. Okay? That's, we, we tend to kind of paint that in grays behind the scenes. Uh, we need to bring that to the front because we look at our circumstances and we think they're very real. And they are. But let's not discount because if we pull that too far away, we have to infuse complexity here and reality back into the story. So don't trivialize their actions without serious self-reflection and examination. Learn to identify with the characters rather than judge them. And then we have to ask, finally, find the human elements in the story. You know, how, where, where's those universal truths? Who do you identify in, with in the text and why? And whose words and actions spoke to you? So just some ways to move beyond reading the text to understanding, um, and we'll get onto this further. Just want people to catch a passion for Old Testament narrative and story. And... Um, Look forward to doing that. As we go forward, I'll be giving you a text. What I like to do with texts is I like to make a copy of them and I like to mark them up. Um, don't do that in my Bible, but, you know, because they look a mess afterwards. Um, you know, use colored pencils. We did this in Dennis's Hacks Bible study for years, um, but it helps you to look and see the text and try to start establishing connections and themes and the like. Any quick questions? This is just a primer for us going forward as we begin to look at narratives so that we can all um, be working from the same basis of understanding. Okay, sorry, Chris. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. It is such a blessing to us. Let us not despise it. Pray, that, Lord, that you would instill in us a passion for your word, that we would feed on it every day, that we would take this means of grace and that you would use it in our lives to make us more into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.